Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I'm Walter Lohman, director of our Asian Studies Center here at, at Heritage. Um, it's good to see a healthy amount of interest in, in this topic and beyond what we have here in the auditorium, of course, we're, we're live online streaming and that will, that will uh, be archived there for people to watch uh, from now on. Um, we're here to talk about the WTO and its role in addressing the challenges that we face with China on the trade account. Um, the two things that really prompted us to do this, uh, first, obviously, there's the current impasse we have in U.S.-China relations over trade issues. Uh, there's a long list of problems um, that go back years, frankly, as we've been trying to address. Um, and many of the concerns on whatever list you're looking at of the administration's concerns Many of them, most of them, are very well-founded. Uh, some of them, like size of the deficit and things, I think many of us don't, don't care about a whole lot. But, of course, there are serious issues on market access and some other things that have been around for a long time. Uh, the second thing that, uh, that prompts this program today is what strikes me as an ill-considered indictment of the effectiveness of the WTO um, out there on Twitter and elsewhere in, in commentary. Uh, certainly, the WTO has its gaps and competencies, uh, and the Chinese have not been consistent in compliance with their obligations under the WTO. There's a need to have reform. Uh, in fact, the U.S. and Japan and EU just came up with a proposal yesterday to begin to get at some of the reforms that are necessary. <coughs> but for one, I think that the, the um, indictment of the WTO, the negative narrative, uh, about it being useless and all the rest is just a little bit too easy. Uh, and that easy narrative about the WTO fuels the trade uh, dispute that we have with the Chinese, if you want to call it a trade war. I think it's actually fueling trade war because it leaves, it leaves the impression that there's no other options than unilateral action by the United States. There may be things outside of the, maybe things outside the scope of the WTO that we need to address on a bilateral basis. I'm certain there, there are those things. But even on those things, I think we need to proceed based on facts and not based on uh, impressions of the WTO and uh, and basically rhetoric about how we got to where we we are today. Uh, so to get a fuller understanding of this issue, the role of the WTO uh, in this dispute with China. And to address the larger challenges that China poses to the international system, I reached out to someone who knows these issues better than almost anyone, uh, former two-time chairman of the appellate body of the WTO, Jim Bacchus. By way of introduction, let me also say Jim is a distinguished university professor of global affairs and director of the Center for Global Economic and Environmental Opportunity 
University of Central Florida. Wow, we have long titles around here at Heritage. That's, <laughs> that's a really a mouthful. Um, he's also a former U.S. congressman, of course. It seems like a lifetime ago, I'm sure, at, at this point in his career. Um, he's, of course, very well published, including two books, one, Trade and Freedom, uh, from 2004, and then just released, The Willing World, Shaping and Sharing a Sustainable Global Prosperity. I have to say, though, that the, that the probably the uh, affiliation or line in his bio that most recommends him to me personally is affiliation with Cato Institute. <laughs> All those other things are great, but when I saw that, I thought, you know, we got to get him over here. Cato's doing, uh, in my opinion, excellent work on, on trade, um, and, and really indispensable at this point in the debate. Uh, so, Jim, I'm going to turn the podium over to you and let you talk to us about this issue, and then when you're done, have a seat, and we'll hear from our other guests. I'll introduce them, and we can try to get a conversation going. Thank you. Thank you so much, Walter, and thank you all for coming uh, this morning. It's a pleasure to be at the Heritage Foundation. You do great work, too. Uh, Heritage has always understood that uh, when we speak of human freedom, we have to speak about trade. Free trade is an opportunity for more human freedom. One of my roles in the world he did not mention is uh, my role as... um, a professor of international law at uh, Zhejiang University in Hangzhou in China, um, which has the largest uh, law school in China. I uh, teach there from time to time about international law, international trade law, and the international rule of law, uh, which I believe is important also for freedom everywhere. On my last visit, I was escorted uh, uh, to the airport as uh, I left um, by one of my brightest students, um, a a young man who always had many questions. And as we were riding to the airport, uh, he turned around from the front seat and asked me, Professor, who is your favorite American president? And I replied, Abraham Lincoln. He smiled and he said, Abraham Lincoln is my favorite president too. And then he proceeded to quote the Gettysburg Address in its entirety, word for word. And I thought to myself, how many of us in the United States can do that. And I realized also that um, my young students shared the idea of freedom. In my impression, the Chinese people do not want to become Americans, but they are yearning to be free. They want to be Chinese, but they want to be free. 
And it is very much in our interest as Americans for the Chinese to be free. To be free, they have to rise economically. Because only with economic opportunity and trade and in commerce can there be more opportunities to be free. So the question is, how should China rise? More particularly, how can China rise? In my view, China can only rise, it can only climb the ladder of competitive advantage in the world if the Chinese people become more free, including economic freedom. The vast amount of the uh, economic growth in China over the past generation has come from the embrace of private enterprise and the innovations of a growing private sector in China. It has not come from the inefficient, uh, debt-ridden, state-owned enterprises. And yet the Chinese uh, focus at this point seems to be away from the market, away from economic freedom, and back toward state control, state-driven efforts at growth, discrimination against foreign participation in growth, and all that, in my view, will not lead to a lasting and shared economic growth for the Chinese people. So my comments today are offered as a friend of the Chinese people because I believe that what they should be doing is what we actually should be asking them to do. It is something in our mutual interest, and that is the embrace of free trade and economic freedom, both in China and the United States. When I was a young man at um, USTR and a trade negotiator, I had the privilege of helping implement the first bilateral trade agreement between China and the United States. Later, while I was in the Congress, I was a strong supporter of uh, getting normal trade relations, uh, what we called at the time uh, most favored nation status, uh, to China, even before China became a member of the WTO. While I was with the WTO, I was a strong supporter of China's accession to membership in the WTO. And as a judge on the uh, appellate body of the WTO, uh, I had the responsibility of uh, uh, judging the first appeal in a dispute that engaged China in WTO dispute settlement. And I happened to rule in favor of China and uh, quite a few other complaining parties uh, in a dispute over steel safeguards imposed by the United States. I don't want to disillusion you, but uh, the United States of America does not always fulfill every one of its obligations under the WTO treaty. So I have watched as China has become a member of the WTO and has benefited from membership in the WTO enormously. 
And as I go back and forth between here and China several times a year, I realize that China has a much better understanding of the benefits it derives from membership in the WTO than we do here in the United States. And that's especially so now. This underlies the current trade confrontation between the two countries. How is it that we can help China rise while also helping ourselves to continue to grow economically and sustainably? The best way is certainly not to build walls between China and the United States. It is not to impose new tariff barriers. In my view, virtually all of the tariffs that the current administration has applied, not only to China, but to many other countries during the past two years, are illegal under international law. Seventeen cases have been filed against the United States of America so far this year in WTO dispute settlement. Uh, we'll see what my successors on the appellate body have to say, if indeed there is an appellate body in the course of the next year or two, because at the end of this week, because of inexcusable, shameful political intimidation by the United States of America and its refusal to join the consensus to appoint and reappoint members of the appellate body, the final court of appeal in WTO dispute settlement will be down to just three judges. It takes at least three judges to decide an appeal. And we now have the interesting situation in which the United States of America is uh, stonewalling efforts to uh, provide the appellate body with its full complement of seven judges, and at the same time criticizing the appellate body and WTO panels for the fact that their process of dispute resolution is getting slower because they don't have enough judges. What should we be doing with respect to our relations with China? We should be relying more on the WTO and not less. Instead of undermining WTO obligations, instead of circumventing WTO rules, instead of violating WTO rules, we should be employing WTO rules to secure the changes that we seek in China. China has a right to rise. China does not have a right to violate its WTO obligations. The Chinese tell us that they are strong supporters of the WTO, and they are intent on complying with their WTO obligations. This assurance should be put to the test. 
It has become a truism in the U.S. media that the uh, WTO does not offer any opportunities for resolving our very real concerns about how China is treating American products and American businesses. Nowadays, if you say something often enough that's not true and say it over and over and over again, it seems that people begin to believe it. And this is just one example of how we're being told things that simply are not true. Certainly, the WTO is in need of improvement, modernization. Certainly, there are places where we need to improve WTO rules. But there are many WTO rules that right now offer opportunities for us in engagement with China in dispute settlement. And we should proceed with even more dispute settlement against China in the WTO, even as the Chinese should uh, do as they are doing, which is respond to our illegal actions with WTO complaints of their own. The purpose of the WTO is to provide for the peaceful settlement of trade disputes. The WTO has resolved in the course of the past 20 years and more a total of more than 500 international trade disputes, positively, successfully, lastingly. Moreover, the mere presence of a rule-based global trading system provides an atmosphere in which most countries apply with most all their trade obligations in most all of their commerce every day. Disputes are resolved because the disputing parties know that there is a binding dispute settlement system backed by the last resort of economic sanctions. These disputes never get to the WTO. The Chinese, when they have been brought to the WTO and found not to have acted consistently with their obligations, have a good record of complying with WTO rulings against them. Indeed, uh, in some respects, they have a better record of compliance than the United States of America, which drags its feet endlessly in compliance. Think of the zeroing disputes over anti-dumping rules. What are some of these opportunities that which we should be pursuing in the United States in our disputes with China over trade? First of all, many people say, well, you can't really pin down the Chinese because so much of what they do is elusive. So it's hard to challenge them by identifying the measure 
in WTO uh, terminology that must be challenged. The measure being the actual action by the state that consists of a WTO violation. But the truth is the jurisprudence in the WTO uh, takes a broad view of what a measure can be. And there have been any number of cases in which the United States itself has been able to uh, uh, do a great deal of excellent legal work in identifying measures that are elusive in China and elsewhere. And I am confident that this can be done by USTR, the um, legal office for trade disputes, uh, if uh, they are charged with doing so. If we look, for example, at the Made in China 2025 industrial strategy uh, of the Chinese, a strategy that I believe will not lead uh, to lasting economic growth or technological leadership by China, but will take them in the opposite direction, then we can see a number of opportunities. Where there are, for example, local content requirements, where there are requirements that uh, Chinese goods and services be used instead of imported goods and services. These requirements are illegal under WTO rules. They can be challenged. And there is a whole string of WTO cases in which local content requirements uh, have been held to be in violation of WTO rules. There's also the issue of technology transfer. We're told that there's simply no uh, recourse in WTO rules for challenging um, requirements of the Chinese for technology transfer. And yet, if you look at the accession agreement that China signed, and it binds China as a member of the WTO, you find there are specific provisions prohibiting forced technology transfer. These provisions can give rise to claims in WTO dispute settlement against such required technology transfer. We're concerned about the loss of trade secrets, and we should be. This is a big concern of U.S. companies doing business in China. And we say there's no recourse in the WTO, and yet there is a specific article in the WTO Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights that provides protection for trade secrets. In fact, the protection provided for trade secrets in uh, the WTO Intellectual Property Agreement, the TRIPS Agreement, uh, goes considerably beyond anything that has been said about trade secrets in other international intellectual property conventions. 
and yet we're ignoring the opportunity provided by this article uh, to uh, support claims in WTO dispute settlement against China, uh, where China has violated this obligation. I'm also of the view that uh, there is an opportunity to bring a systemic case in the WTO against China relating to the continuing failure of uh, the Chinese government to provide for uh, protection of intellectual property rights throughout China. There is a whole section of the intellectual property agreement dealing with enforcement. Most WTO obligations are uh, negative obligations, what I refer to my law students as don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. For example, don't discriminate against uh, foreign providers and foreign goods in favor of local providers and local goods. But the Intellectual Property Convention has a section on enforcement of intellectual property rights, patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, and more. And this section of the TRIPS agreement is an affirmative obligation. It's a do, not a don't. It says you must protect intellectual property rights. That article, that section, has been in the TRIPS agreement for 25 years. We have had the opportunity all along to bring a systemic case of intellectual property violations against China, and we have refrained from doing so. There's also the issue of subsidies. We're told that uh, WTO rules are inadequate to challenge the subsidies that are provided through the Made in China 2025 program and through other uh, efforts by the Chinese government to prop up state-owned enterprises. I think we need more subsidies rules. We need to improve our agreement uh, that relates to subsidies and countervailing measures in the WTO treaty. But there are many provisions in that agreement that exist right now and can be uh, used to give rise to claims against uh, Chinese subsidies. Uh, a week before um, he left office, uh, President Obama had uh, his trade team file a case against China's agricultural subsidies, which are rising and often not notified to the WTO as they should be. Now, this case is in process. The United States has a strong case. I'm sure China uh, will uh, uh, do uh, a thorough job in defending it. Uh, the Chinese have an excellent uh, team of trade lawyers in Beijing. This is the way to resolve disputes about subsidies. Uh, subsidies provided uh, by the Chinese uh, can be challenged by many aspects of the uh, subsidies agreement. Uh, 
where they uh, are um, conditioned on export performance or where they are conditioned on uh, using uh, local inputs into the making of products instead of foreign inputs, subsidies are automatically illegal under WTO rules. And where there is a subsidy that is specific to certain industries or enterprises that has adverse effects in the marketplace, those subsidies are also illegal under WTO rules. And there are, at this point, dozens of uh, <coughs> cases in the WTO that have been resolved under the subsidies agreement where such subsidies have been found to be illegal and where countries have then withdrawn them. In bringing these cases, the United States should not go it alone. The United States should enlist uh, European Union, Japan, Canada, and others that are equally concerned about some of these issues. And it is my belief that if China is found to have violated these obligations in the WTO treaty, and if China then complies with the rulings of the WTO, as it has generally done uh, quite well over the past 17 years, then China will be more likely to grow economically and the Chinese people will be more likely to rise. There's much else that can and should be done in negotiations. We need to proceed with a bilateral investment treaty with China. China needs to keep its pledge to uh, sign the WTO government procurement agreement. We need new negotiations in the WTO as part of this WTO reform effort that is now beginning uh, to address some of the gaps that do exist in the rules. Uh, I could cite many examples, but to cite just one, uh, to what extent should governments be able to require uh, investors to um, engage in joint ventures as a condition of entering their marketplace? But beyond this, we need to act now in ways separate and apart from dispute settlement, but also within the WTO. The United States and China are far apart in their efforts somehow to resolve this trade impasse. Negotiations are going nowhere. At this point, there are no plans to resume negotiations. Uh, the latest round of tariffs imposed by the United States illegally uh, have uh, caused the Chinese to cancel a planned visit here 
And they have since that time um, uh, rejected an offer to engage in new negotiations. Just yesterday, uh, they said they feel the United States is engaging in bullying tactics. I think it is. Uh, the Chinese have imposed retaliatory tariffs, which I think are also illegal, and everything is beginning to get out of hand. There's a danger that all this will spin out of control. Uh, we're seeing some early signs in the United States that investors are postponing some of their investment plans. Uh, we're hearing warnings from Walmart and other retailers about uh, price increases on uh, the near horizon. Uh, we're seeing the beginnings of some disruptions in the uh, supply chains of U.S. technology and other companies. Uh, the stock market is not yet internalized. Uh, what's happening in international trade um, 2018 seems like it's going to be a good year in the stock market and the U.S. economy, but we should be thinking about 2019. And in China, uh, the Chinese are continuing to struggle with their efforts to find the right balance between growth and stability. Uh, the retreat recently from um, market forces to more status control of the economy, uh, I think, will not produce lasting economic growth or technological advance. There is a burden of debt in China. Uh, infrastructure is slowing in terms of uh, its increase. Growth overall is slowing. Uh, this trade confrontation has, to date, not done much to affect the Chinese economy, but it is not a welcome development uh, for China as it continues to try to rise. One of the little-noted provisions in the WTO dispute settlement understanding is uh, Article 5, which provides for mediation. Uh, any party to any dispute, any member of the WTO engaged in a dispute with another member or members can request mediation in the WTO at any time. This is an alternative to the usual approach in dispute settlement, which is litigation. Uh, it can occur even as litigation occurs. It offers the opportunity for some type of agreed settlement between the United States and China that can resolve their own trade concerns mutually without violating the rights of other WTO members. For example, if the Chinese were to agree that they were going to 
direct more of their purchases <coughs> to American producers, um, then they would be discriminating against producers from uh, other countries that are members of the WTO. Now, this would be a WTO violation. Uh, managed trade is generally not consistent with WTO obligations. I believe the United States and China should give some thought uh, to uh, seeking WTO mediation. Thoughtful, objective, neutral mediator might be able to help them find the common ground for a positive solution to this trade dispute. The Chinese have professed over and over again their support for the WTO and for free trade. This will be an opportunity for China to prove that uh, it means what it says. This will put this Chinese um, pledge to the test. The Chinese should be willing to mediate. Of course, the President of the United States has shown nothing but disdain for the WTO. He denounced the WTO again yesterday in his remarks at the United Nations. Yet others in his administration profess to continue to support the WTO. The President himself says that the WTO needs reform. He seems to be seeking new ways for the WTO to make the right kind of difference in the world. Why not uh, agree to mediation? After all, he could always denounce the mediator. So in my view, we should be proceeding on two fronts within the WTO. We should be engaging in dispute settlement. The United States should be bringing the claims it has against China in WTO dispute settlement. And in turn, China should be bringing the claims it has against the United States in WTO dispute settlement. And both countries should comply with the rulings. At the same time, because this trade confrontation promises now to become a trade conflagration, China and the United States should seek WTO mediation in hopes of a positive solution in the form of an agreed settlement. The other day I got an email from my student who had uh, quoted the Gettysburg Address to me. He was very excited. He said, my dream has been to study in the United States of America, and I now have that opportunity. I'm going to be studying at one of the universities in the Midwest. So once he gets here, I plan to send him 
his very own copy of David Donald's biography of Lincoln. I know that in studying President Lincoln, he can be reminded of what is truly great about America and must be great again. Thank you all so much. That was terrific. Uh, you raised a lot of issues that we we have some time to talk about in, in just a moment. One that I, I hope we can get to is um, you talked about the illegality internationally of the uh, sanctions that were imposed. I think there's also a question of domestic legality that maybe we can get into a, a little bit. There's some uh, some things that are not quite in keeping with the Section 301 as the administration has carried out this, this policy, and I do hope we can talk about that. Uh, but first I want to um, – uh, give an opportunity for our guests to offer their perspectives both on uh, Jim's remarks and, and, and more generally the, the problem that we're faced uh, in our trading relationship with China. Um, Jeremy Waterman is president of the China Center and VP for Greater China at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce where you've been for a long time. I can't remember how many years, but but a long time, a long time, fifteen years. Wow. Okay. Uh, what what makes Jeremy so perfect for this is that I know how tough he is on on these issues, and I know how extremely well he knows them, how how familiar he is with U.S. Uh, China trade issues. So I expect him to put this session through its paces. Um, similar goes for for Aaron Ennis. Aaron is senior vice president of the U.S. China Business Council. I, I haven't known her as long as I've known Jeremy, but I value her opinion greatly and actually find myself reaching out to her often for for her guidance and counsel. Uh, Aaron has been with the U.S. China Business Council for more than 10 years. She also has extensive experience in government, both in the legislative branch and at USTR. So with that, let me turn it over to Jeremy. I think you talked for about 10 minutes. Is that, and then, well, and then we'll – to be brief. And, okay. Uh, Walter, thank you. It's a, great, it's a great pleasure to be back here at Heritage. And um, uh, certainly this is a terrific group of congressmen and um, uh, a longtime colleague and a collaborator uh, with Aaron and, and – um, uh, this is certainly a very timely event, so congratulations, uh, Walter, to you and Heritage. Uh, in fact, next week, uh, USTR will uh, 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 hold its annual uh, hearing on China's WTO compliance, and uh, I suspect that we have submitted uh, for that, and if any of you are interested, you can, you can probably find our submission, our take um, on uh, the Federal Register Notice website, I would assume the council probably has submitted as well. Um, l- let me just, um, first of all, commend uh, also uh, the congressman for a really set of, a set of terrific remarks. Um, uh, certainly there's, there's quite a bit that I agree with personally, and certainly the organization that I represent, that I work for, um, agrees with. Um, certainly agree, first of all, that we are at a, a critical juncture, if not an inflection point, um, in U.S.-China relations. And, and looking back historically, certainly looking back to WTO accession, but even before WTO accession, um, uh, there's been, uh, as the relationship, as the U.S.-China relationship has uh, improved and as China has become more integrated into the global economy, there have been tremendous benefits, um, uh, certainly here in the, uh, in the United States, um, and also for China. And so, very much agree uh, with with uh, that point. Um, I think also agree with 
um, with your diagnosis of the, of the problem or of the problems. Um, certainly, we, we also agree uh, in large measure with the diagnosis put forward by the administration. Um, certainly, the chamber um, uh, noted its support for the Section 301 investigation and many of the issues, uh, really all of, all of the issues um, that are outlined in that Section 301 investigation with regard to technology transfer and, uh, and intellectual property and the various uh, regulatory, uh, legal regulatory uh, means, uh, extra legal means uh, that are uh, often employed um, uh, against our members as well as other uh, foreign companies. Um, and so I think it's, it, it's also fair to say uh, that the WTO has, has not been an unqualified success, even as the WTO paved the way for many of the benefits that American companies enjoy in China and many American exporters uh, uh, have enjoyed and continue to enjoy to China. Uh, after all, U.S. exports to China over the last decade have grown by nearly 90 percent, um, whereas they've only grown to the rest of the world by about 20 percent. Um, there hasn't been uh, the, the, the accession process has not been an unqualified success. We can talk more about that um, in the Q&A. Um, uh, and uh, certainly I think it's fair to say that history did not, in terms of U.S.-China economic and commercial relations, history did not begin anew in November 2016 when President Trump was elected. There was mounting frustration uh, across uh, many uh, stakeholders, including in the business community, and Walter, you alluded to this uh, earlier, um, with the lack of progress um, in a number of areas and concern about uh, the direction that China was taking. And, and, and Congressman, you mentioned a, a, a return to emphasis on state-directed outcomes, uh, discrimination, an emphasis on industrial policy. We see that in the normative guidance of the 13th five-year plan of policies like Made in China 2025 and others, which which um, uh, are, are important in the Chinese system because that is the direction that the party in particular sets for uh, for ministries, uh, for the government at the national level, but also for print, provincial and local governments, as well as for enterprises, which are many of which are either owned by the state outright or heavily influenced uh, and directed in some capacity by the state and, and uh, regulation in China. Um, uh, you know, we certainly agree with, uh, again, I, I certainly agree with the congressman about, uh, about tariffs, and uh, I think the business community is certainly united um, in opposition to tariffs. We have a great website. If you haven't looked at it, uh, it's, it's actually very uh, catchy and very simple, thewrongapproach.com, um, which um, uh, highlights the, the counterproductive effects of uh, the impact of tariffs uh, across the country um, on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, uh, all, all that we, as these tariffs are announced, we feed them into the system and we have supportive supporting anecdotes as to the damaging impact on American consumers and uh, workers and, and, of course, businesses, uh, farmers, ranchers. So uh, recommend that to you. Um, uh, and, and finally, let me say, um, and, and obviously this is the, a key topic of our discussion today, um, we certainly uh, vigorously support and defend the WTO. And I think uh, uh, again, agree that uh, with Congressman's um, vigorous defense of the WTO, as well as 
uh, the point that he made that the WTO very much needs to be a key component of the U.S. government strategy uh, for addressing challenges with China. Um, but for the, if for no other reason than the, than the sake of, um, of um, spicing up the uh, conversation a little bit, let me, let me offer a few cautionary uh, notes about the challenges we face with China today and, and I guess perhaps a somewhat more sober assessment of the WTO's, the, 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 the current WTO's ability to deal with those issues. Um, as a student of China and as someone who, who reads Chinese and reads the laws, the regulations, the policies, and studies the implementation thereof, I think it's fair to say that the drivers today of Chinese uh, industrial policy um, and, um, and broader policy are not um, the kinds of issues that the WTO is well-equipped to deal with. Uh, I think we have to remember that the WTO uh, was uh, – there have been a few updates to the WTO um, since 1994, but really the core of the WTO um, came into existence in 1994. There have been a few um, uh, um, additional agreements, whether it be ITA or government procurement uh, or uh, uh, telecom, but those are voluntary agreements. China's a part of some of them, but of course, most notably, not part of the government procurement agreement, which it uh, had pledged to um, to join. I think it, I think the language in the Working Party report was as soon as possible back in 2001. Um, um, the, the the issues in particular that are the drivers of Chinese industrial policy today. Uh, Competition policy, the antitrust policy. In fact, China's just created a new uh, super regulator that integrates the antitrust authorities with the standards authorities and the IP authorities. So the WTO doesn't really deal with competition policy. Um, standards. Um, the WTO has an agreement on technical barriers to trade, and there are certainly some disciplines around standards, but they are not terribly robust. Um, and uh, there is not m- much if any, uh, case uh, law in that, in that space. Um, and uh, in part because the, the, the disciplines, again, are not probably as robust as they, as they need to be. Um, security, and in particular commingling, I would say, of commercial and security policy. There's an exemption in the WTO for national security. Um, every country in the world has national security considerations. Um, the question is, is how you define security. How broad is the definition? Um, some in China talk about absolute security or comprehensive security. Um, and if you're defining security as to be absolute or comprehensive, uh, um, of course, that's going to have a significant impact on the scope of what's covered in the commercial space. Um, I, I think most governments around the world, certainly we here in the United States, have traditionally had uh, a, a narrower definition, and even in still in in many uh, U.S. laws, we just went through a process of, of updating uh, CFIUS legislation. Right, the, the, we have FIRMA. Still, a very carefully struck balance between um, national security and economic security. Even as, of course, this administration is now um, uh, uh, exhibiting some worrying, very worrying uh, uh, indications in terms of how it's commingling national and economic security. But the point I would make is that China, for for a very long time, has had this very broad definition. 
And, and the trend, and we wrote a report about this in 2016, has been for China to leverage a very, very broad definition of security to push forward a commercial agenda. Um, uh, administrative licensing, another area where the WTO, um, I think, struggles. Um, uh, again, uh, every country has a licensing process. The issue is, is, is the licensing process fair? Um, you know, and, and, and there have um, uh, uh, been lots of challenges um, in that space. Of course, state-owned enterprises and subsidies. Uh, the WTOs did contemplate, of course, when it was created, the GATT, its predecessors, things like state trading. Um, but it never contemplated an, a, a, a $12, 13000000000000 trillion economy um, with the kinds of uh, state-owned enterprises that China has and state-influenced enterprises. And there is a real issue with regard to transparency, and that issue with regard to transparency has become more of a challenge, not less of a challenge recently, as information in China has become harder to get, not easier to get. Uh, and China, of course, has has never had a great record in terms of notifying its subsidies. And then perhaps most importantly, um, data flows. And, of course, we are in a 21st century economy today, Every company is a data company. It's not just it's not just ICT companies, um, and so I think that in part explains why there is this ongoing effort, um, an effort that we very much support at the U.S. Chamber. I think the broader business community supports. It's critical that that uh, that we're working with allies. Um, it's it's essential that we're working with allies. But this ongoing effort, there was another, there was a meeting yesterday up in New York of of the three uh, trade ministers from Japan. EU and of course Ambassador in the U.S. Ambassador Lighthizer, and they're certainly making I think uh, uh, a very important attempt. Both I think perhaps in a plurilateral, a plurilateral effort, but also a multilateral effort. Or what could turn into a multilateral effort to try to update the WTO um, um, uh, to address um, some of these issues. Uh, I think the challenges are. You know, I, I think we should be very sober, though, about the challenges of updating the WTO from within. China is a member of the WTO. It is a consensus-based organization. Other, you know, others are going to have to be a party to this as well. The Indians, the Brazilians, and many others are going to have to be brought along with whatever, assuming there is an agreement among uh, uh, among the, the three um, economies that are participating in this process. Um, I think there's also the question of what is the leverage to get to, to push forward uh, uh, reform of the WTO. Uh, I think the the Europeans, uh, to their credit, have taken the lead in, in putting forward some proposals to update the WTO. But what they have not put forward to date is is a negotiating approach that is likely to produce results. In fact, in some of the conversations, the Europeans have suggested that it's the, this administration's tariffs that could be the leverage, in fact. Uh, that's not an approach that we agree with in the business community. In fact, the, the view of the American business community has been that we need a plurilateral approach. Uh, the TPP, for example, the TTIP, that has long been uh, our view, and, and it's a great lament, of course, that we are not moving forward with those efforts to update disciplines on data and state-owned enterprises um, and, and other 21st century trade issues that were core to the TPP, uh, to the TPP effort. Um, uh, why don't I leave it there? Um, but I think, um, you know, and, and look forward to the 
to the Q&A. It was great, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Your any questions? try to critique the work of a former member of Congress and chairman of the WTO appellate body. So um, I will tread lightly on this and try to stick to my lane where I can speak to what my authority is. I have a thick is. skin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, won't, I probably won't prick too hard on it because I agree with much of what you said. And always a pleasure to be on a panel with Jeremy. Um, I, I think I'd like to focus on three points just to contextualize some of the things that both Jim and Jeremy said, and and some things that I think we should be thinking about as we try to determine what the right response is from the United States as well as from the global trading community to the uh, shortcomings that we've identified and where the rules and the WTO and elsewhere fall short. So I want to focus on three things. First, what we what it really looks like on the ground for companies that are dealing with some of these challenges in China. Second, I want to touch a little bit just on the concept of fairness, which I think is something that is an interesting one um, that this administration has used in a variety of ways, but it's one that I think is an interesting context to consider where we go with WTO rules. And third, the U.S. response in particular. So in terms of what this looks like on the ground, Jim mentioned in passing that the WTO potentially should be looking at um, the requirements of things like joint ventures uh, and what that means for markets. Um, in China, most sectors at this point do allow 100% ownership. There are a few that continue to have JV requirements. They tend to be pretty notable, autos. Um, even those are uh, being phased out. Uh, in financial services and services in general, there tend to be a lot. Why that matters in a business context and why it matters in the context of things like the administration's Section 301 case are for this reason. The point, the point that Jim made that China's WTO accession agreement in particular bars the government from requiring a company from transferring <coughs> its technology. And it specifically says that such requirements for tech transfer are, are things that need to be worked out between business parties. So in that scenario, let's say that you are a company that is in a sector that requires a joint venture. We'll just use a random sector of widgets. My widget sector requires me to have a 50-50 joint venture in China. I identify a Chinese company that I think I'd be willing to do business with, in that arrangement, I'm, I might be willing to share some of my technology, but not all. I might want to hold it all back and simply have this just be a, a licensing agreement of some sort. But in the course of that negotiation, I and my potential joint venture partner are going to have extensive discussions about what that joint venture looks like. Who pays for the factory to be built? Where is the IP going to be registered and who owns it? Um, how will we be dividing up the fees that we get from the sales of those? Who's, who's covering dealing with the labor issues? In that context, two private parties or even a private party in a state-owned enterprise where one of them is in the market already, but simply by the nature of their nationality, and the other's entrance into the market is dependent upon that domestic company, you have an inherently uneven negotiating uh, environment for the two companies. Because in this context, my Chinese counterpart could say, well, I'm really only interested in this deal if you transfer all of the intellectual property and the technology of how to make it, and I get to own 100% of it. Now, in this context, I have to make the determination is this just a negotiating ploy? I mean, can I say no to this and, and we'll go back and the guy will say, well, I was, I didn't think I was going to get that anyway. 
Or is this legitimately what the other party wants in it? This is the kind of an evaluation that every company that is in a sector that requires a joint venture has to go through because I can guarantee you that whether you're in China or any other market, your your potential partner is going to seek to get the best deal that they possibly can. And you have to make the evaluation, is this a request that's simply trying to get a better negotiated deal out of me, or is this a requirement that if I don't do this, I'm not getting market access? In that circumstance, it does make a difference whether you can, as a company, own 100% of what you're doing in the market. There are companies and sectors that are open to 100% in China who still continue to have joint ventures because they've found that they can negotiate business transactions in ways that make sense to them. But in the instances where you can't, it is essentially an existential choice. I have to make an evaluation based on what I think the best offer is going to be and whether I can comply with that and whether that meets my business bottom lines. Now, at the U.S.-China Business Council, we ask our companies about these kinds of asks every year. The most, uh, the majority of our companies tell us that they don't get these kinds of asks, um, that they, in general, are able to operate in the market under the structure that they want. A minority, you know, maybe 10% each year report that at some point during their business operations in China, they've gotten this kind of a request. And then as you start to dig down into that, who would own the intellectual property? Were you compensated for it properly? Did you feel like you had to go through it? You start getting to a smaller and smaller number of companies that are genuinely in a circumstance of a joint venture or other sector where they are forced to transfer their technology and not compensated properly. But for those companies, it is a matter of entry into the market or not. Now, this is among the reasons why eliminating ownership restrictions um, in every sector is among the things that the U.S.-China Business Council, the Chamber, and others have called for for years. By eliminating that, you at least are are eliminating one of the inadequacies in how foreign and domestic companies are treated in China. There's plenty of other things that can be done as well in this. In addition to that, it's very important that the government also consider the fact that it can now you know, we're working on 20 years after accession, still maintains a designation of all foreign companies in China as being foreign invested enterprises. That in itself denotes that you are somehow different from all of the other companies that are operating in the market. Why does that matter? Again, it gets back to some of these issues about how the market treats foreign companies. If I know that I am going for an insurance license, even if I can own 100%, but my license application goes to an office that only deals with foreign companies rather than dealing with all companies on the same basis, the regulator inherently has a bias against my company because they're not even looking at all the applications from domestic companies. There's no way to evaluate what equivalence is in that circumstance. Um, It is, a, a, a by design, supposedly a separate but equal system Uh, But I think we've seen plenty of examples in history where that simply doesn't work. These are among the very tangible things that China has and other markets as well that can be addressed. And let me let me emphasize that that is, I think, the most important aspect of it. Some of these things are failings where the WTO falls short because the rules allow China to uh, interpret the rules in ways that probably most of us never anticipated 20 years ago when these negotiations were coming to a close, but that still need to be addressed. And others are things that simply need to be improved in China's system to, to bring that fairness to the table. 
we believe that those things are worthwhile to explore. Like the chamber and like most other, other trade associations and companies, we don't think that tariffs are the way to get there. I will say that tariffs have focused the attention of the Chinese government, and we think that that is why it's important to use that leverage that is there um, to have a discussion about what those changes look like to create it. Now, let me point turn to my second point on fairness. This is one that we don't talk a whole lot about in the context of WTO rules because how do you define what fairness is in global trading rules? I mean, essentially what the, what the Uruguay round looks like is what, what fairness looked like in the 1990s. We defined the world in terms of how companies should be treated and how governments should treat those companies based on the context of how we knew the global economy worked. We are now, many years later, in a place where we need to reevaluate some of those things. And while I think that the administration's focus on fairness as the standard is one that's very hard to define, I do think that it's one that the trilateral effort that the European Union and Japan and the United States are undertaking are trying to to put some parameters around what that looks like. Now, in terms of some of the specific sectors where um, – where the administration has noted that there isn't fairness. Some of them are things that we in the past didn't think were that big of a deal. Telecommunications. We, in general, have um, some liberal areas where you know, we don't restrict who can do cloud computing in the United States. In all honesty, when the Uruguay round was written, nobody had any idea that cloud computing was ever going to come about. So we, while we weren't prescient at the same time, um, they are areas where each country, as they have defined it, have looked at it somewhat differently. China's approach to it has been one that has sought to protect that for domestic companies. That is, in the views of the administration, inherently unfair because a Chinese company can come here and set up cloud computing, but an American company or any other nationality can't do the same in China. I don't think that that's the right standard by which we should be enforcing our trading rights because we agreed to the rules just as China did. But it is a good indication of an area where if the rules are no longer um, bringing around the kinds of behaviors that we want from other governments, we should be re-looking at them. And finding the right ways to define that in a way that moves us away from a, a simple reciprocity standard of, you don't do that for my companies and therefore I'm not going to do it for yours, is what's in the best interest, not just of the United States, but also of all of our trading partners. It is a race to the bottom if we are going to start going to um, the path of of commonality between our systems that has – our openness has benefited us as an economy. It hasn't hurt us. And pushing others to live up to our standards rather than bringing ourselves down to a lower standard is the right way to approach those things. My last point simply in terms of what the U.S. response should be to this, we've heard frequently um, over the past year and a half that, um, that the reason why tariffs are being used is that nothing else has worked. Um, I would – push back on that argument and say that assumes that we tried everything in the past, and I don't think that we have. Um, we certainly have very gifted negotiators over the course of the last 17 years since China's been in the WTO who have done their best to try to address issues, but dealing with things piecemeal can be very difficult. And so working with our trading partners is a logical next step that we have not exhausted and that we should continue to be looking to because it's not just American companies that have these problems in China. It's every foreign company that has these problems. 
And we have seen success in areas where we've worked with our trading partners. Uh, the U.S.-China Business Council in the Chamber worked well with trading partners on pushing back on some of China's indigenous innovation requirements that had linked um, transfers of IP to China, as well as tying it to procurement. Um, with a collaborative effort, China recognized that that not only was a violation of its WTO rules, but it also wasn't in its interest to create an innovative economy. We saw similar progress when we pushed back on some tech localization requirements and banking and insurance. These are obviously discrete areas, and none of them transformed how China does its economy. But at the same time, they are indications that we have allies and that when working with them on areas where we are pushing towards a higher standard, we can seek some success. I think it cannot go without saying, though, that the other things we need to be looking at are what we should be doing here domestically. There is no denying that China's economy is large. It is a competitor, and in many ways, we have to decide whether that is something that we want to engage in by trying to restrain China, or if it's something that we want to engage in in a way of upping the bar on where China has to go to compete with us. That has got to take some domestic looking at what we are doing in terms of uh, workers who have been left behind by globalization. Um, what we need to do to promote innovation in our country, where we want our economy to be in five years or ten years, and what it looks like for us to get there. I'm not suggesting that we engage in five-year planning. Um, we're not that good at planning even year to year, although I understand we will have uh, appropriations passed uh, potentially before the end of this month. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to be looking internally and determining what we can be doing to strengthen our own economy in the midst of this, rather than assuming that all of the changes have to come from outside of the United States, because that's what's made our economy strong, and that's what's going to keep it strong going forward. Thank you very much, Erin. Um, it's just dawning on me how, how, how much expertise and knowledge we have on this stage right now. We can't barely do it justice in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, so I, I, I very much want to get to question and answer, but there's one question I have to ask, Jim, and maybe if you could just keep it to two minutes. If that's, that's Pretend you're back on the House floor again and you, you, know, <laughs> you, you only get it. You can revise and extend your Right, mind. yeah, exactly. But I wanted to give you uh, an opportunity to respond to Jeremy's points about um, where the WTO is not well-equipped because that's – very much the heart of the issue. You addressed half of the heart of the issue, I think, in your remarks, but I think Jeremy's criticism is the other, the other part of that. Is that could, could you uh, could you respond to him? Uh, yes, it won't take long because I agree with everything Jeremy said, um, and much of what he talks about is in my new book, uh, where I, <laughs> I advocate addressing uh, all of the issues he mentioned and. And a whole lot more. Uh, we, we need to, to reimagine the WTO. Uh, we need to address a lot of the issues that did not exist uh, 20 years ago or 25 years ago when we were concluding uh, the Uruguay round. Um, um, foremost is digital trade. Um, certainly on the list is competition policy. Um, the Europeans suggested in Singapore about 15 years ago that we negotiate a, a competition agreement. The United States opposed that. We were wrong, and um, we certainly need such an agreement 
Now, I am pleased that um, a number of WTO members are beginning to address the issue of trade uh, reform. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this issue specifically in Bali at the joint annual meeting of the IMF and the World Bank uh, week after next, and I'll be talking about it in Geneva uh, next week at some length while there. Um, in my view, we need to uh, reimagine um, WTO rules in ways that are consistent with achieving global sustainable development. Everything that Jeremy mentioned should be on the list, uh, but beyond that, we need to be doing uh, much more across many of these agreements. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, let me open it to questions. I know Pat has a question. You have a microphone here. Identify yourself <coughs> in mind. And... Uh, I'm Pat Malloy. I'm a trade lawyer here in Washington. I was on the China Commission for a number of years. So thank you, Congressman Baucus. I think you would testify before the China Commission. I was there. I did. I did. Um, and Aaron, I agree with you absolutely. So much of what we have to do is domestic and changing some things that are going on here. Congressman, you mentioned that there were all these cases or filed with USTR to go after IPR, and they we never pursued them. One, I'd like to know why you think we didn't. Secondly, I remember at one point. There was a petition filed with USTR when Zellick was the USTR to go after exchange rates. I think there's an Article 15.4 in the WTO agreement that could cover that, and they would have to go to the IMF. Why did we never pursue, one, the IPR, or two, the exchange rate issue in the WTO? The um, decision not to pursue a systemic case challenging the overall a Chinese regime for protecting intellectual property rights was a decision made uh, by the Bush administration, 2005, 2006. Uh, at that time, I'd left the WTO and I was representing as a lawyer uh, the U.S. entertainment industry, motion picture industry, the uh, music industry, the book publishing industry. Uh, we uh, ended up bringing and winning two cases against China uh, on uh, copyright piracy uh, violations and uh, audiovisual obligations. The Chinese complied with these rulings. Um, these were two successful cases. Uh, however, these were narrow cases addressing very specific violations. Uh, what we had sought uh, from the administration was a decision uh, to bring a much broader case, uh, the case I suggested earlier uh, under the enforcement chapter of the TRIPS agreement, but the Bush administration uh, chose not to do that. Um, to my knowledge, the Obama administration never considered it. As to uh, exchange rate issues, uh, currency issues, you're right. There are provisions of the GATT that have been there since 1947 against uh, a manipulation of currency. Um, they've never been tested. We don't know what they mean uh, because there is no jurisprudence. Uh, they could be employed. Uh, there is a potential GATT case. Um, at this point, I think um, there's not evidence of significant 
currency violation by China a decade ago. There may have been. I know it's still in the talking points of people in Washington, but uh, I don't think the facts reflect uh, the reality there. I've also always been of the view that um, it would be a mistake uh, to take such a case to the WTO. I think it better uh, to deal with those issues on a, um, a multilateral basis uh, uh, through the uh, financial ministries uh, of the world. I think there can be more of a settlement there. Uh, I know the current administration is um, uh, bent on including uh, currency provisions and trade agreements, uh, but I'm not sure how successful any of those are are going to be uh, in part because um, there are real problems in terms of uh, um, implementation and of uh, demonstrating that there has been no implementation. If you uh, have a legal case, you have to prove it uh, with facts, and that w- that's going to be very hard. Uh, another issue is definitions. We lawyers always like definitions. Um, defining terms, you know, what exactly is currency manipulation? We, we don't have any international uh, agreement on, on what that phrase means. Thank you. Okay. Uh, right here in the front. We have a microphone coming for you. Hello, I'm Aisin Lao. I'm very happy to be here. In 2009, I was in Guangdong. I was in the University of Guangdong. In 2009, I was in Beijing. I was in Yifu Lao. My question is, um, the WTO is, is just pursuing one strategy, uh, pursuing um, legal remedies. Um, should we not be maybe perhaps stepping up and pursuing a world court uh, in terms of ratifying our, our legal concerns? And then the other one, isn't Xi Jinping doing us a favor by forcing us to have a... Um, a renaissance of American manufacturing? Jim, you get the world court question. <laughs> yeah. I think the well, I, I think the WTO sort of is a world court. I mean, it's a, it's a, right? Well, I think that's what, I mean, it, it is a, it's an agreement that many, many countries, I can't, how many hundred, hundred plus countries around hundred and, I don't know how many, how many, 164. 164 members of the, you know, have agreed to, to a common set of disciplines, right? Like With, on the, on the uh, South China Sea case. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that's a viable option, but I, do you have any, Well, we have the International Court of Justice, uh, which is part of the United Nations. Um, It's it's never really considered commercial cases. Uh, There are other international disputes, marine disputes, for example, as you mentioned, that can be uh, brought before the uh, International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, uh, which is in Hamburg. Under the WTO Treaty, uh, all um, disputes relating to matters covered by the treaty among the 164 members of the WTO 
must be taken to the WTO for dispute settlement. It is a violation of the treaty not to do so. Uh, this is why the United States has violated uh, its WTO obligations over and over and over again in the past two years. Uh, Article 27.1 of the Dispute Settlement Understanding uh, says that uh, WTO members uh, must first go to the WTO for dispute settlement uh, before taking any unilateral action uh, in the form of a trade restriction. We have not done that. In retaliation, other countries have, in my view, also violated uh, this same provision in the WTO agreement. They have some creative uh, reasons uh, suggesting that they have not done so. Um, we'll see uh, what my successors on the appellate body think about those creative uh um, reasons. Uh, but we have a situation in which uh, because of uh, the reckless actions of uh, the Trump administration, uh, we are now seeing uh, the spreading of WTO violations throughout the trading system. As important as the economic aspects of the U.S.-China trade imp- confrontation are, far more important to the the world economy as a whole uh, is the fact that uh, these uh, actions by the United States are uh, leading to an unraveling of the trading system. They are undermining the rule-based trading system in which we have worked uh, together in the world to create over the past 70 years. Um, this would be a tragedy if it happens, uh, but um, there's been too little attention uh, to this, uh, to me, overriding issue. Maybe I could just, you know, one issue that I, I, I neglected to mention in my comments, I think, relates to um, the incentives for using dispute settlement. Uh, and, and I'm speaking now specifically in a China context, or, or perhaps I should say lack thereof. Um, as wonderful as the system is, as important as it is, and I agree again with everything Congressman said, there is a challenge um, when it comes to um, the the enforcement side, and in particular um, when you when you go through the pro- assuming you're willing to go through the process, right? Because for many for many governments, uh, not uh, but also um, more specifically for for companies that have to provide the information to the governments, of course, there's a real risk. Uh, uh, of retaliation, and uh, so that is that is a, that that is a deterrent. Um, to um, and then when you look at you look assuming you you win the case, um, there is this there is this question of the pot of gold that that exists at the end of the rainbow, uh, assuming it is a pot of gold and the. When you talk about subsidies in particular, the remedy after going through perhaps a three-year litigation process at the WTO to include the the appeal, the remedy is really that the offending country, assuming the country, assuming assuming the plaintiff prevails, um, has to basically remove the subsidy, um, and and that's a real challenge. Because, in particular, because of China's size and the amount of subsidy that we're talking about, and so, for example, if we look at the auto parts case, where China 
it was pretty pretty well understood um, that China was going to take a, a you know was going to go through litigation uh, was going to uh, you know uh, almost admitted that it was violating uh, the rules um, but had a goal at the end of a three or four year horizon of having a domestic auto of bolstering at least and and really having a domestic auto parts industry that three-year time that three-year window where a country is allowed to subsidize in the same way that we are now allowed to apply WTO inconsistent tariffs which are which again are, are, are highly counterproductive is a challenge and I think it's one that there that, that in the trilateral context these ongoing discussions um, I think it I think it's being discussed and it's something that that, that like-minded governments are going to have to figure out a solution to um, because as we look back at at the history of some of the subsidies that we've seen in China, whether it be steel or solar um, uh, or wind wind turbines or or in some other areas, uh, there, there the, there's been significant market dislocation, market distortion, not just within China but globally. And obviously now the concern with Made in China 2025 is China is looking to replicate that kind of distort or will whether it's intended or unintended, may replicate that same kind of market distortion in these higher value-added sectors. And so it's, it's something that does need a solution. Um, now, overcapacity is something the Chinese have been talking about addressing going back to their working party report. I, I looked at the working party report actually last night just because it's something that I, I like to do for fun. Um, and, um, and certainly um, – China's representatives, the WTO back then, or, or, or the lead negotiator, um, underscored time and again that China was moving to separate regulator from regulated. China was moving to uh, provide a decisive role for the market in the economy. That's something that was highlighted um, in the third plenum decision back in 2013. Um, uh, but this goes back to 2001. And, and I think, again, it underscores you know, what we heard at the 19th Party Congress, um, where China's moving, in fact, toward the state, right? So I think the hope in the business community and more broadly is that China actually China actually follows through on the reforms that it has long said it was going that it has prioritized for its own economy, for its own economic efficiency, to to enhance the the efficiency of capital throughout its economy. Uh, the allocation of capital in its economy to curb overcapacity, to curb debt, that China moves forward with greater opening and promoting greater competition, um, and 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 China can do those things certainly, you know, irrespective of what the Trump administration is doing. Uh, China can China can and should move forward um, with its own reforms, and 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 those would be good, I think, for China, and those would be good also for U.S.-China relations, and they would be good, quite frankly, for China's relations with its other trading partners. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do something I never do, which is go over 10 minutes here, so um, I hope uh, everyone can stay with us if possible. Uh, before I go for another round of questions, and I'm going to get maybe three to, to, to finish up on, I did want to ask Aaron something, um, which is uh, the point you made that um, everything hasn't been tried <laughs> that it's wrong to say that we have to go this unilateral uh, route because nothing else works. You singled out um, uh, partnerships with our other trading partners working together to to address these issues. What about the bilateral dialogue with China? 
if you, if you narrowed it down to that, is it fair to say that it just doesn't work? And, and that's what the administration has been saying for the last two years, that it's not worth it anymore. Uh, what, what do you think about that specifically? Well, it certainly isn't working right now. Well, well, yeah. But has it worked? Is there any value in bilateral dialogue? Do you see areas yeah. where we could get yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll actually harken back to a point that Jim made about the bilateral investment treaty. We can have a conversation about whether um, the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade was successful as a whole, the strategic economic dialogue, the strategic and economic dialogue, the comprehensive economic dialogue. I really don't care what you call it. There were parts of some of those things that definitely worked. Um, under the JCCT in particular, the Medical Devices and Pharmaceuticals Working Group had the right combination of issues, industry, and regulators talking and making progress. And if you talk to the folks in medical devices and pharmaceuticals, they will tell you that that dialogue resulted in changes that now their products are able to be traded not only on a fair basis, but that things are moving smoothly. Building on whatever worked there, it, it might not be replicatable, replicatable, whatever that word is, um, in every sector, but certainly we can build on that. And then for the other areas, for those broad um, structural issues that the administration um, has made clear that it wants to see addressed and that we in the business community want to see addressed as well, you have to come up with a new framework. And that's what the bilateral investment treaty negotiations were seeking to do. They never concluded. They got really far. Now, it could be that the final issues that were outstanding were the ones that would have made it um, difficult for us to be able to sign in the end. National security, as Jeremy pointed out, is one of those issues where previous administrations have been reluctant um, in the United States to have further definition of what national security is out of fear that it would constrain how the U.S. wants to define those things. But it clearly is a problem with China of how it was defining everything as national security. Um, that might not be an issue any longer, uh, given that the U.S. administration might have a little different perspective. But through those negotiations, the U.S. government was making progress at not only putting in place a framework that would lead to greater fairness, that would lead to structural changes, eliminate some of uh, the remaining caps on foreign investment in sectors, and provide a dispute settlement system that would enable companies, if they were discriminated against because they were being told that they needed to localize their technology, they would have had an enforceable right to say, no, that, that was covered in the bit, and as a consequence, you cannot force me to transfer my technology or to localize it in order to be able to invest. So I, I do think that it can work. I think it's important, though, that it works in the context of not just talking for the sake of talking. You have to be going somewhere. It has to be measurable and commercially meaningful, and you need to be constantly checking against that standard of are we making progress, and are there other things that are being passed that are undermining it that we need to be addressed. But, but it is certainly possible to move forward. Okay. I'll take three questions, and then we're going to try to get three questions and answers and wrap up from all three guests all within ten minutes. So uh, I'll try to do that right, right here. Um, thank you. My name is, my name is Anshu, uh, Inside U.S. Trade. Um, I guess my question is, you know, if you accept the premise that the U.S. and China are sort of engaged in a battle for strategic dominance in these industries, um, great power competition, if you will, do we have time 
to go through the WTO procedures because a lot of these cases, you know, like you look at like Boeing Airbus, for example, took more than a decade, you know, I guess could still be ongoing ostensibly. And so I guess, you know, do, do we, you know, can we, can the U.S. go through the WTO process and, or is there a risk, you know, at 10, 15, 20 years from now, we'll say, oh, we're still in litigation and they have now kind of outcompeted us in these sectors. Thanks. That's that's a really good question. I was just looking this morning at a list of all the cases that we've had uh, with the Chinese over the, over the last uh, since two thousand four, and they are all resolved in about three or four years. Uh, so even the three or four years, it's a good question whether that's sustainable, whether that's a good uh, good uh, good way to go when it takes so long to to resolve. Or, and can we can we remedy that? Can we fix that through some reform? Uh, right here. Thank you, Walter, for doing this. Great. Um, a couple of questions. Leah from Voice of America. You know, with the escalation of the trade disputes with the Would U.S. Would you speak louder, please? Okay. Uh, with the escalation of the trade disputes between U.S. and China, I think many people are concerned that we might, we could be in a long-standing trade war. So I'm wondering where do you see where do you see this leading to? What are the potential scenarios? The other uh, related question is beyond trade. Uh, we just see reports that um, said that the Trump administration is planning a uh, administration-wide broadsides against China. Um, I wonder if, if this happens, uh, what could be the potential impact for the U.S.-China relations? Uh, administration-wide broadside? Yeah, the, like a tag, I think the... Oh, across? Not just across trade, but <laughs> what is that? There was an Axios piece two days ago, I think it was, that was saying it was going to be a comprehensive. So beyond trade, just it's beyond trade, like, yeah, cybersecurity. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. One more. Uh, all the way in the back. The, the gentleman there with the blonde hair. Uh, hello, my name is William Thompson, and I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. So my uh, question for Congressman Bacchus, you talked about how we need more rules on subsidies. Um, and I'd like to relate that to to dumping. So um, given that dumping is just, you know, China subsidizing a certain industry and then selling it in the United States at below market price, um, do you, what is the problem from an economic standpoint of dumping, given that you said we need more subsidies rules, but what is the problem from an economic standpoint of dumping or subsidies um, from an economic perspective as far as the U.S. advantage of getting cheap steel and other various goods? So, so to some extent, you're, you're suggesting dumping is not a problem. I mean, we're having access to cheaper steel, so. I mean, China's taxing their citizens right. to give us cheap steel. Right. No, I got it. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Okay. Um, let, let's start in reverse order with, with Aaron and uh, – <laughs> Uh, I get to answer this question. Answer whatever you want, and you sum up, <laughs> add whatever else you left on the table. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Final remarks. Yeah, um, I, I will attempt to answer the dumping question, and Jim can correct me. Um, I, the reason for it is number one. I mean, it gets back to that fairness standard. Um, yes, governments around the world can subsidize. Um, that's actually countervailing rather than dumping duties. But regardless, you can subsidize your companies. But we get to seek compensation for them because that, that creates unfairness in a market. If you are, if your companies have to compete against a product that has been so driven down in price that they just can't bring their product to a, a fair price. Um, anti-dumping cases in general are a, an individual company doing that rather than a government. 
Yes, I guess you could say that you get a comparative advantage of a government willing to um, to spend all of its money to produce product, but that actually damages the other company, the other country's economic economy as well. If you look at solar panels, China had, it flooded the market with solar panels globally. And yes, it brought down the cost and a lot of, a lot of homes in the United States and industries were able to get solar panels installed. But now China's got too many solar panel companies and they're putting a lot of people out of work because they need to consolidate the industry. The demand isn't there in the market for it. You know, these are the reasons why we have global trading rules. Yes, any government can, can push the levers on one way or the other, but what the reason for the rules do is to try to bring fairness to that so that one government isn't doing it at the expense of another and distorting the markets for prolonged periods because that's what we've determined is in the global so we had determined was in the global interest i think the only other thing that i would note kind of in a in my cleanup remark on this is I think it's very important in any of these discussions that we keep the focus where it needs to be and that is china needs to implement its reforms it needs to open more fully to foreign companies. It knows that. It's having its own debate about how fast to do that and what ways to do that. But we should not lose sight of the fact that the challenges that we are dealing with are solvable challenges if we get down and do the work of identifying what the specific problems are and what the specific solutions are and come up with ways to implement those things. We believe that that is possible if you keep the focus on China's policies that are distorting the markets that are unfair or that fall short of where WTO commitments are. And if the WTO is falling short of those things, or if we cannot get those things achieved through a bilateral discussion, then we need to work with our trading partners and we need to have China at the table to address where those problems are. We should not suffer from a lack of creativity in doing these things because this is in our own economic interest. Thank you. Thank you. Jeremy. Um, so working backwards, I, I, you know, just briefly on the on the economic issue from an economist perspective, the the, the ends ju- oftentimes can justify the means. Obviously, this is where trade and antitrust, trade and competition, are at odds, right? And and in, in the trade space, actually, the means matters. Um, and as Aaron correctly pointed out, if you subsidize, it, it, it's not it's not always the case. Um, in, at least in the trade space, that lower prices for, for consumers are a good thing. Because if you decimate an entire industry in the process, if you, right, that can have an adverse impact on the economy. So this is something that, you know, um, obviously our, <coughs> the USTR side of the house and the DOJ side of the house don't always agree upon. Um, but uh, I, I think there's plenty of evidence, um, you know, that, that raises questions as to whether just having lower prices as an end, is in fact across the board a good thing. On the issue of a broadside, I only say, look, I, I think over the last week we've seen, um, you know, on the weekend talk shows, um, Secretary Pompeo had some had some had some pretty strong remarks. Uh, National Security Advisor Bolton had strong remarks. Uh, Secretary Pompeo gave a speech on human rights where he talked about a variety of China concerns. Uh, obviously, the president's remarks yesterday at UNGA. We've seen some other actions taken by the administration recently with regard to uh, news, uh, Chinese news organizations. So clearly, you know, what does it look like? I mean, I think, you know, we're kind of watching in real time as the administration is is taking these actions um, and and um, elevating the rhetoric. I, I think the impact is it becomes harder. You know, if the administration wants a negotiated outcome, that's certainly a, 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 
wants to to try to find solutions, right, on the trade and economic side, it, 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 it becomes more difficult. I think it feeds into a very misplaced narrative that we see setting in on the Chinese side, where the Chinese side increasingly sees a, a, um, a, an effort to contain China, which is something that I would say is, in fact, not accurate. Um, I think, I think um, at least certainly I'll speak for the business community here, the business community is focused on, on the business community doesn't have a problem with China rising. It doesn't have a problem with fair competition with China. It doesn't have, and I think, and I think that's true probably for most Americans. I think the issue is, is on, is on the how. How is China rising? What are the what are the what are the laws, policies, regulations, and implementation thereof that China is using to compete? And and in, in that space, um, you know, the business community, whether it's the U.S.-China Business Council, the U.S. Chamber, the National Association of Manufacturers, the BRT, we all have our documents. They're on our website about the kinds of reforms we'd like to see take place in China. I think the administration shares has, has, has a similar list, quite frankly, that would ensure that competition is truly open, you know, the playing field is level and, and, and fair. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, I think that's the hope. Obviously, the two presidents are likely to see one another at the G20. Um, I think we hope that the two sides will re-engage as soon as possible in an outcomes-focused negotiation um, and that there can be you know, real progress by the time the two presidents meet. Uh, there needs to be because the stakes are enormous. Um, uh, you, on your question about WTO, um, you know, I, I commented on it already, but I think um, it really comes down to um, uh, what is the space that China's allow, China's willing to allow for exercise of comparative advantage, right? Um, and I think, you know, that's the concern right now as we look at the top level, top line direction of Chinese, uh, of the party's guidance throughout the economy, the direction seems to be saying, we're going to help domestic companies, right? We're, we're, we're made in China 2025, the 13th five-year plan. Data is a national strategic resource. These kinds of approaches um, uh, are, are China first, right? Um, a China first approach. Um, and and I think what we want, both here in the United States, we've been very forceful with the, with this administration, uh, but we've also been quite quite uh, forward leaning with with the Chinese side. Is that we want a level playing field, and we want a, a chance for everyone to be able to compete fairly and pursue comparative advantage. Thank you, Jeremy. Jim, you're uh, a little clean up here. On the uh, questions that were asked. Um, I agree with all that's just been said about uh, uh, subsidies and dumping. The reason why the members of the WTO have chosen to discipline subsidies and, and dumping is because uh, the premise <coughs> of the WTO is uh, that uh, the world will prosper the most if uh, market forces are permitted to work in the world, um, and I believe in that premise. I'm not in favor of state control. I don't support five-year plans. I uh, want the market to be free. As to the length of uh, WTO proceedings, um, and WTO dispute settlement 
provides uh, the fastest international legal remedy in the history of the world, but also it takes too long. Uh, needs to take less time. Uh, the Boeing Airbus dispute is an outlier. It's actually a series of disputes. Um, the average time for the resolution of a WTO uh, dispute is usually about three years from beginning to end. It's been a little longer for some disputes, but this is too long. Uh, there are some easy ways, even under the current rules, that this time could be shortened. First of all, uh, too much time is spent at the beginning uh, in the process of selecting the panelists for the ad hoc tribunals of uh, three uh, jurists who serve as the court of first instance, uh, so to speak, in WTO dispute settlement. Um, there ought to be ways to accelerate that process, uh, perhaps with a more um, visible role uh, for uh, the um, um, Director General of the WTO or others uh, when parties cannot decide on panelists. Months are often lost on that that need not be. Also, at the um, end of the dispute, uh, these uh, periods of time of three to four years include uh, the time of implementation after there is a ruling. Uh, the current rules say that, uh, as a rule, WTO disputes, settlement rulings should be enforced immediately. Um, but the actual practice of the WTO is to allow a period of 15, 18 months uh, to implement a ruling. Sometimes uh, this lengthy period is necessary. Most often it's not. But there's a lot of mutual um, give and take among the members uh, in allowing longer periods for implementation because a member may be on one side of a dispute one day and on another side the next. Um, sometimes this is arbitrated. I've been an arbitrator on uh, these <coughs> matters, and I think that the um, length of the periods given uh, in arbitration is too long. Uh, it should be a much shorter period. Um, if you did these two things alone, you could cut a year off of the process. And there's more, too, that could be done in modernizing the dispute settlement system. On the last point, it's my view that um, most of the serious, even urgent concerns in the world cannot be resolved unless China and the United States are working together to help resolve them. Climate change is one of those issues. Um, the fight against global terrorism is another. Um, the damage we're doing to our biodiversity and our ecosystems in the world is uh, still another.
the United States and China can certainly compete economically. That's the way market forces work, and we need to find uh, the best fair terms on which uh, that can uh, proceed. Uh, but um, this must remain merely competition in commerce. Um, more broadly, the United States and China need to work side by side and cooperate uh, in addressing global concerns as well as their own bilateral concerns. We need much more international cooperation in a world in which virtually everything is international. And it has to begin with cooperation between the United States and China. Great. Thank you. Um, you know, if I could just a quick point on that last uh, last observation. Um, the, the one reservation I have about that is that it's often used by Beijing to leverage the trade issues into the broader issues where we have very legitimate some bilateral concerns, some multilateral concerns, South China Sea, Taiwan, any number of things. So I, I to the best extent we can, keep those issues separately. So I, I don't think it's good for us to, to, to wrap them in because we basically play into a Chinese uh, uh, strategy to leverage one against the other, leverage where we need cooperation, like on some of the issues Jim mentioned, or on trade, into us backing off some of the political security issues where we need to continue to be strong. Uh, with that, let me let me end our program. Thank you very much uh, for being here today, all three of you. It's been a terrific discussion. And thank you all for coming out. No? Okay, you're already 20 minutes in New York. I, I know people will be mobbing you, know. you afterwards. Oh, go well? Uh, you just pull me out whenever you need me. Okay. Hi. Great to. Oh, Jeremy. Yes, just need a great remarks. Let me. Uh, okay. <laughs> hey, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. You'll agree with everything. <laughs> thank you. I don't know about Walter, that. Thank you. Uh, I got to run. Okay, take care. Thank you. Yes. Sure. Great to see you again. Yeah, just enjoy. Yeah. 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 I think the thing to keep in mind here, though, is that what exactly are we talking about in terms of a manufacturing renaissance? We have the highest productivity we have ever had. We just have fewer workers doing it. What, what, what manufacturing has been doing over the years is becoming more automated, more, um, more efficient. It takes a lot fewer people. I get the idea that we want to have a strong manufacturing base, and I get totally the fact that we want to make sure that our companies aren't being disadvantaged. But global supply chains have moved to a point where it takes a lot fewer people to make a lot more stuff, and people tend to want to be closest to where their and customers are. And entrepreneurship and innovation comes in, and we need to step up our game. Yep. Uh, we find that policy is not matching business transactions. I mean, business 
changes rapidly. Our policy is lacking. I think we need to step up. I, I fully agree with you on that front. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Sure. I forgot my announcement. So That's okay. There you go. Um, I'd like to jump in. Sure. Our communications director is one by the name of Catherine Thompson, okay. and 